Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've met so many politicians in my years as a journalist and a strategist, but I can't think of any who are smarter or more incisive than Gary Hart. The former senator from Colorado was writing about the impact of globalization, of technology, about the need for military reform in the late 70s and early 80s. And many of the things he wrote we now know were prescient. He's also remembered for his two presidential campaigns and the abrupt way in which his second campaign ended, a hinge moment and a potentially dark turn in the way politics is covered in our country. I sat down with him in Denver the other day and had a chance to talk about all of it. Gary Hart, always a pleasure to to be with you. Um, you know, uh, my st- strong feeling has been that um, biography is important because biography tells you essentially where people's convictions and worldview come from. And I know you... Are, have been famously uh, uh, uncomfortable with the notion that biography maybe plays too large a role in politics. But I'm interested just in talking to you a little bit about your sure. upbringing and sure. uh, in, in Kansas, in rural Kansas, uh, and how that helped shape who you are. I grew up in a small farming town in eastern Kansas, Ottawa, about 10,000 people then and now. My parents were working people from large families, both of them, and neither of them had the chance because of the the financial burdens their families were under to even finish high school. So they were insistent that I go to college. And um, also uh, we found it necessary at an early age that I would begin to work in the summers. I had my first paying job, I was 11 years old, and I was <laughs> what was then called a car hop. Uh, you, your audience today won't know, have a clue what that was, but I was delivering uh, hamburgers from a little diner into people's cars at a drive-in, drive-up. And then I, had, I have worked every year of my life since then, and that's quite a few years. And uh, I didn't think at the age of 11 there was anything extraordinary about earning 25 cents an hour, which is what I earned. So uh, I went on to college and... Well, wait, uh, let me stop for a second. You sure. also, the faith played a big role yes. in your Well, uh, my upbringing. mother particularly was of the two. They, they were both, both church-going people, but my mother particularly uh, and characteristically was more devout I would say, than my father, who was an outdoorsman. He taught me to hunting and fishing, great, great down-to-earth, uh, salt-of-the-earth man, and values too, by the way. But my mom was uh, very much into the church, and evangelical church. So we went to uh, Sunday, uh, Sunday school and Sunday morning service and Sunday night service, and often to midweek prayer meetings. And uh, I just took it for granted. It was a, um, I'm trying to think how you would characterize it. I would suspect virtually everybody in my high school went to some church. So it was just kind of part of the, um, I wasn't unique in that respect. But But the Church of the Nazarene was a pretty uh, abstemious kind of uh, uh, very, very strict. It was strict, and that's a good word for... Because they were not fundamentalists. I don't remember anyone saying that the earth was 
is only 4,000 years old. I mean, no, we didn't have that kind of challenge to um, science at that time. But they were strict on personal behavior. And during high school and then on to the college, that I, the church college I attended in Oklahoma, we could not, uh, we were not supposed to dance, go to movies. The ladies couldn't wear, weren't supposed to wear makeup and jewelry. Um, no gambling, obviously. Uh, it was it was pretty strict. But again, I think, oddly enough, when you're in that environment, you don't think all that much about it. We made some jokes about it, but that was it. And, well, but you, it impressed you enough that you went when you left college, you pursued at first a, uh, a, a degree in divinity. I did. I went on to divinity school. But people assume that means you're, you're headed for the pastoral ministry. My goal was an academic one more than a theological one. I wanted to teach in college. My major in college was philosophy with courses in religion and so on, obviously. But I, I had in, te- in mind to get a Ph.D. in philosophy and religion and spend my life teaching. And along came, among other things, the 60 Kennedy campaign. And I was, at that time, feeling less and less strongly about a teaching, an academic career in the sense that it seemed... Too disengaged? Uh, too remote, too mm-hmm. detached, if mm-hmm. you will. Worthy, for sure, but uh, not, act, not active enough. So all of a sudden, it, there was a new possibility. Not, not get involved in politics. That was not John Kennedy's message or Robert Kennedy's either. It was public service. And people almost never make that distinction, including people in the media. But there's a big difference. Do what you do what you can for the country. I don't think John Kennedy ever said to my generation, "Go out and run for office." He didn't say that. Find a way to give something back to your country, your community, your state, whatever. So that opened up a new vista for me, which I had never thought of. Let me interrupt you for a second because I th- I think a lot about this. You know my. My political awareness began at a very early age when John F. Kennedy came and campaigned in 1960 in my little community uh, housing development in in New York. And uh, while I can't recite his speech from my memory of as a five-year-old, I, I did recover it years later. And the essence of it was what that whole campaign was about. Yeah. You know, it was the it was sort of the. Uh, uh, predecessor to ask not what your country can yes. do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And it was all about the things that people were going to need to do to secure uh, the future in a very perilous uh, and, and bo- both perilous and, 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 uh, and promising time. And um, it struck me in thinking back that the whole audience that day were, uh, it was mostly women because it was uh, in the middle of the day, and yes. children. Yes. And they were mostly the wives of returning war veterans because that's where my, that's yes. what my housing development was built for. Um, and there was this ethic that, you know, y- you might be called upon to serve. Uh, everybody in some form or fashion had during the war. Uh, so it seemed like a natural uh, message uh, that kind of message is is a harder message uh, in this day and age because people haven't gone through a depression, haven't gone through uh, a war in which there was universal service. Well, also because I don't want to pin the tail on the media donkey, but there is much more cynicism about politics today. Look, we had Watergate. We've had... Uh, the Vietnam War, which was not was not honestly portrayed to the American people, there have been a lot of bad things happen, and instead of um, having a kind of instinctive trust in a new candidate, a young John Kennedy or something, there's almost there's almost an immediate skepticism if that goes into a cynicism later about almost everybody in politics. That's the big change. But you know about the service, public service. 
whether he realized it or not, that message came from ancient Athens, 800 B.C., and it is the centerpiece of the republic. Now, we salute the flag of the Republic of the United States. You could go outside the room and ask 10 people, what is a republic, and they couldn't tell you. We talk about ourselves being a democracy, but we salute the flag of a republic. Central to a republic is citizen participation. So I think I choose to believe John Kennedy knew there was this was the essence of of classical republicanism, small r, and portrayed that message, which, by the way, we haven't heard since. And uh, for the last twenty five years, I've made it a a study of republican theory. I wrote a, a PhD thesis uh, on the theory of the republic in modern day America. And it doesn't work if citizens don't participate, and they are not. You, uh, I want to get back to this and where we are uh, today, but uh, just to pick up uh, your uh, journey, you went to law school yes. uh, at Yale, uh, and uh, you, I think you served in the Justice Department yes. uh, at, the, uh, at the outset. Um, and by 1968... Um, you were uh, Vietnam War was raging. We had this tumultuous convention. Civil Nixon rights. gets elected. Yeah, civil rights. By the way, you you were uh, as as engaged as you were. You you were not uh, one of those students who went down south. No. And uh, why why was that? It's a good question. Um. Many of my friends did from the law school. It was a notoriously active law yeah. school. And um, I can't account for it. I probably should have. But I certainly was wholly in sympathy with Martin Luther King and the whole movement. I did work for Robert Kennedy here in Colorado in 68, um, the, the following year, because of Vietnam, but also civil rights. The uh, and then after that election, uh, George McGovern, yes. uh, who was a, a, a sen- uh, then a senator and an avid Kennedy uh, supporter, was appointed to look at party rules because you had this tumultuous convention, Democratic convention, at which the party bosses were thought to uh, have in Chicago. <laughs> in Chicago, yes. <laughs> well, there's a history there, but. Um, and and you went about the business of rewriting the party rules. First of all, how did you get chosen for that uh, assignment to lead that effort as a staffer? I really wasn't involved in that in the so-called McGovern Commission. Uh, I worked as a local volunteer, and they held hearings around the country, and I helped organize the hearings. I see here in Colorado, but mm-hmm. I wasn't nationally involved. But I, I strongly believed after '68 that the rules had to change. And they did. Yeah, no, they did in a, uh, in a major way. And, in fact, you ended up managing George McGovern's campaign in 72. Probably your familiarity with those rules was a tremendous uh, advantage to him. But here's my question. Yes. Uh, because I was a, a young person at the time, deeply supportive of all of those rules changes. Uh, is, is it possible that those rules changes went uh, and subsequent rules changes went too far, that the process so boxed out? Uh, party uh, leaders that uh, that uh, the, the the process suffered for it. Well, that's certainly a theory among political scientists and political journalists. But uh, let's take the Illinois delegation for example. The rules were established two years ahead of the delegate selection process. We're talking about this is 1972 when you 71 leading up yeah. to 72. And every state, Democratic Party, every city knew what the rules were. Certain proportion had to be women. Certain proportion had to be minorities. The process had to be open to young people. Delegates were not going to be selected in back rooms by party bosses. It had to be open and transparent. Right. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew this. Right. So guess what happens? A reform McGovern group led by a young, I think, Jesse city Jackson. councilman, Billy Singer, and, Bill Singer and, a, yeah. and a young black activist, Jesse yeah. Jackson, followed the rules and elected delegates. 
The mayor of Chicago, the original Mayor Daley, did not do so. He picked the delegates. So we get to the convention in Miami, and we had to decide who, who was seated. Well, this is a terrible <laughs> We needed Mayor Daley, <laughs> clearly. Yeah. And yet these By now, other, McGovern's the, nom- the nominee, uh, or will be at the end of that convention. Well, yeah. but that's, there's a very long story there. It wasn't a slam dunk. It could have gone the other way with a shift of delegations. So we offered, I was involved in this, we offered half-delegate seats to the Daly delegation and to the Singer-Jackson delegation, and the Daly delegation turned them down. So mm-hmm. whose fault is that? No, no, I understand. And, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm steeped in that history being a Chicagoan, and, and, uh, and many of the people who are surviving are on both sides are friends uh, of mine. But my question is, is different, uh, which is, is there something to having uh, sort of uh, statesmen who, oh, par- yes. who participate in yes. that process and whose voices carry a lot of weight yes. in that process? And can you over-democratize the process to the point where uh, you, you squeeze those people out of the process? Well, they weren't squeezed out. They just... They, they I'm were, just... I'm they over time. Few... I'm not talking even about 72, but over time. Right. You know? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about mm-hmm. overtime. There was nothing in the rules, the new rules, that prevented a, an Adlai Stevenson or senior Democratic officials from um, trying to become delegates. They, they weren't shut out. They were just used to being handpicked by the machine in various states, New York, Illinois, and elsewhere. What the correction was, since what your question assumes... How do we get the party regulars, elected officials and party officials, back into the process? And there was a counter-reform four years later because of the law, McGovern's big loss and the question you ask. And we got something called super Mm, delegates. And they were automatic delegates because of their position in the party or in as elected officials. And they they made the difference uh, jumping ahead in 84. Mm-hmm. For Walter Mondale, when you were yeah, all when of, you were, all of when, when you were running, President there's a big debate, as you know, in this last election. The Bernie Sanders yes. uh, folks were uh, very much uh, angered about super yes. delegates, saying that if that that super delegates should not have had the influence they had. What was your view of that as the as an original uh, participant <laughs> in this reform process? I think there's a way. I'm not. I'm not intelligent enough to figure it out, to have it both ways, that to have automatic delegates. But I think the solution may be they have to pledge that that they will make their own independent decision as to who they want to vote for. Because if you're a senator or congressman or a mayor or the party chairman in a state, you're under enormous pressure from a party establishment to go along with the establishment candidate. And that's what Senator Sanders was saying, what I said in years before. And if you can find a way to make those people make honest decisions and not make, if you will, political decisions, fine. They ought to be in the convention, but they shouldn't be lockstep. I I called a lot of superdelegates when I was a national candidate. Over and over again, they said, I was pledged by the front runner months and months and months ago, and I was urged to support him. But that's before you won the New Hampshire primary, and I I would think differently now. So Mm -hmm. that's the problem. Um, The 72 campaign uh, ultimately gave rise to Watergate. Uh, a break-in that took place in June of 72 that ultimately would topple a president. Were you aware when you were running the McGovern campaign of the, uh, or did you suspect the scope of some of the activities that the Nixon campaign ultimately was exposed as having engaged in? For two reasons, yes. We had a wonderfully colorful senior manager of the campaign named Frank Mankiewicz. Mm -hmm. Former uh, RFK Robert Kennedy press secretary. Yes, RFK press secretary. Very funny man, Hollywood background and so on. And he had known Nixon or about Nixon for decades. 
from the very beginning in California. And his attitude was, don't be surprised by anything. So that, was, that kind of raised a red flag. But then minor stuff. I had a little, uh, my wife and children were back in Colorado by then because I was on the road all the time. I had a little one-bedroom flat, pretty primitive, near our headquarters. And two guys showed up one day. To, they wanted to um, inspect my apartment. And the building manager said, well, who are you? And they said, well, we're at the labor department. And they kind of flashed a phony badge. It was creep. It was Nixonian. Mm-hmm. That, they were up to that kind of stuff. You, uh, ironically, um, Watergate uh, and all of those activities, they may not have been decisive in, a, in an election that was uh, uh, very uh, lopsided. Um, but uh, it also probably made your election possible in 1974. You came back, you ran for the Senate uh, in Colorado. Uh, and um, uh, in the midst of the, of the Watergate hearings, the resignation of the president, and you unseated a, a three-term uh, incumbent. So Watergate played uh, a big role on both, on both ends yes. in your journey. Well, I think my class in the Senate, particularly the new ones, but more in the House, was called the Watergate class of Democrats. And there were dozens and dozens of new, new people who came in. I don't know the numbers on re-election of, of um, incumbents that resulted from that. But it was an enormous it, Democratic yeah, wave. It, and uh, the president resigned August the 9th or 10th. And I ended up winning the Senate seat against a two wealthy two-term incumbent, 60-40. So, sure. Um, what, what did Watergate do to our politics? What did Watergate do to our political uh, culture? Opened the door, as I said before, to, at the very least, skepticism. But it quickly became cynicism. And there's a big difference. I think people should be skeptical about politics and politicians. It was the founders of the country wanted them to be, not to just take whole cloth, everything that came out of Washington. Ask questions. But when it shades over into cynicism and the assumption, however you define it, that there's something wrong with this person unless proven otherwise, that's when it's dangerous. And that was the beginning. And as I indicated earlier, on top of that came assassinations. And, well, preceded that, assassinations. Then, of course, Vietnam and a whole series of things, scandals here and there that um, just created a skeptical, if not cynical, electorate. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Senator Gary Hart. What about the media environment that Watergate created? I know that you you were uh, you're very friendly, were very friendly with Bob Woodward, who was uh, very instrumental at the Washington Post in exposing the Watergate right. story with Carl Bernstein, uh, but. Uh, they also spawned a whole generation of journalists who sure. saw that as their mission yep. to expose wrongdoing yes. uh, in government, which on the one hand is a healthy thing because that's the role of the media is to shine a bright light in dark right. corners. On the other hand, uh, it became sort of the definition of what reporting right. uh, should be. Right. And it shaded over predictably into invasion of people. Of political figures' private lives, which is not, in my judgment, what the First Amendment is about. There's a point where shining light on public performance is not only legitimate but necessary, but when you begin to try to sell newspapers by expose and scandal um, and invasion of privacy, I'm not trying to protect anyone but I am saying what the net effect of that is to drive good people out of politics. 
There are just high caliber, high quality people that don't want reporters going through their trash or finding out what movies they watch or looking for who they're having dinner with or anything like that. They just say it's not worth it. So that's the price that's paid for that kind of journalism. I want to get uh, more deeply into that because you're, you're, you're in certain ways a poster child for that change in the way politics was covered. But talk to me a little bit about the Senate that you arrived in in uh, 1975 and the difference between the Senate then and the, the Congress now. Yes, world of difference, David. Um, <laughs> it's this, this simple answer as to how it was then was we cooperated and we got along with each other. Now, were there hardliners on both sides? Uh, yes. Uh, their Republicans had a man from North Carolina called Jesse Helms and, and Strom Thurmond and people like that. And on issues of race, they were right out of the 19th or even 18th century on things like that. But there were also then what were called moderate Republicans, and very few people would remember them now, but Jacob Javits of New York, or Chuck Percy from Illinois, Mac Mathias from Maryland, Clifford Case in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. These were mainstream, traditional Republicans, but they were not Rupert Murdoch, uh, Limbaugh, uh, radical right people. They would compromise. And now that's something, at least on the right, is not permitted. You, there is no compromise. And that's why we're stuck where we are. And by the way, all those people are gone, and every one of them was replaced by a, someone who was harder line. So there's been a, a systematic purge on that side, led by uh, big money and influence. I don't think, I, I know everybody's, there's a theory of equivalence. Well, that nothing that's happened on the Republican side hasn't happened on the Democratic side. I disagree with that. My party has its faults, and it exposes them every day. But I don't think we've had a litmus test ideological purge in the last what, 30 years of the sort that's happened on the Republican side. There is a sort of intolerance for compromise in portions yes. of the Democratic Party yes. as well now as a reaction to uh, what we've seen. So there is a there is a there is some fear on both part of uh, members of both parties about primary challenges and yes. uh, stepping out uh, stepping outside the, yes. the kind of partisan lines in terms of legislation. What, what what about the what in addition to sort of partisanship there and maybe it's just everything looks bigger in the gauzy kind of reminiscences uh, of history, but. It feels like there were a lot of big figures in the United yes. States Senate when yes. you arrived there. And Absolutely. you don't really – you wouldn't say that today necessarily. No. no. Caliber and quality has gone down. I'm very reluctant to say things like that because it has a tone of arrogance to it. But they, they, they really are not, across the board, the same size and caliber of the men and women that I served with, mostly men. But uh, a few women, thank goodness the number of women has, has risen, and some very high-quality ones across the board. But in those days, they were mostly men, and they were – part of it was the greatest generation. Many of these, the Stuart Symingtons and, Mac, uh, and, and, uh, and um, several others, had served in World War II as young men. And they, that made a difference. It really, really made a difference in kind of their, their sense of national, the national interest. And um, I don't see it today. There is, is too much partisanship. But let me comment on the, on the equivalence issue. I know that the, the theory is the, the Republicans have moved farther to right, which is clearly true, demonstrably mm-hmm. true. But the idea that the Democratic Party has become more liberal, mm-hmm. I think, is patent nonsense. Right. Uh, Jimmy Carter wasn't a liberal in any Rooseveltian sense, and I don't think Bill Clinton was either. The, whatever that centrism was, and I never quite figured it out, it certainly wasn't Rooseveltian liberalism or even Harry Truman liberalism. 
And um, so we've got a Bernie Sanders and a Elizabeth Warren. But the part, I don't think Barack Obama was notoriously liberal. He found, for example, a national catastrophe called healthcare and tried to do something about it using, as you well know, um, many Republican ideas. Mm-hmm. And yet he was, he's defamed today by the other side as being ultra-liberal. That's just patent nonsense. When you went to the Senate, you, uh, you went on the Armed Services Committee, yes. and you very quickly became uh, a leader of a military reform uh, movement. First of all, why did you choose to do that? And secondly, um, what are the principles that you believed then, and how do they apply today? It's a very good question, and I've thought a lot about it myself. I, um, I had pragmatic and idealistic reasons. The pragmatic reasons was, having been through the McGovern campaign, where a decorated combat Air Force pilot of 29 missions was running for president and was derided by his opposition as being anti-military. It's just, again, nonsense. Because of his opposition to the war. Yeah. He had been elected twice in South Dakota, not a far-left state. And he understood the military, and yet he got trounced. I decided that I had to know something about the military. I'd read military history most of my life, off and on. But I thought a lot about committee assignments, and it seemed to me that the two best for international purposes were foreign relations and armed services. And I felt much more interested, I was much more interested in the uniform military than I was in diplomacy. But I also was interested Mm -hmm. in the diplomatic side. So I signed up for armed services and got on there. The idealistic side was... uh, the military, the, the management of the military from congressional legislative point of view shouldn't be all in the hands of, of conservative people. That's not healthy. So I thought a young progressive Democrat could make a difference there. So there was a gener- generational transition, but also a, an attempt to not permit a huge part of what governing is about, defending the the country and their, its security from being in the hands of one party or one ideology. And what did you discover? What did you learn? What did you come to believe? Uh... What I found out very simply in two years was that the committee was asking all the wrong questions. They were all money questions. Why is this torpedo costing so much? Or let's put more money into this tank. And that made no sense to me, just from a, an objective point of view. So I began to study it and, and talk to thoughtful, reform-minded people and came up with the formula, not on my own, but from others, that the first thing that defends the country are people. So if you don't have your people recruitment, training, and retention right, you're going to be weak, regardless of the weapons. That was the other thing. All the focus was on weapons. So I put a lot of effort into those issues of retention, training, and, and uh, recruitment. The second thing was your strategy. You can have the best people, maybe even the best weapons, but if you have the wrong strategy, you're going to lose. So we ought to spend more time thinking about our strategy and our tactics and our doctrine. And only after those first two do you build the weapons, do you hire the weapons, and and figure out how many of each of these you need. And your uh, conclusion was that in the world that was emerging, that we needed a different kind of yes. uh, force and a different kind of yes. uh, array of, of, of weaponry that was more mobile, more agile. Well, we, we <laughs> to say that we overpowered the Vietnam, North Vietnamese is an understatement. We had ten times the military power than they did. But they had motivation. They, this, they were fighting for what they perceived to be unification of their country. So our, we had focused on getting all this weaponry over there, but um, our troops lost faith in their leadership, and our strategy was all wrong. It changed three or four times, but it was wrong all along. 
And um, where, where do you think we are today as a student? Of, and I know you've continued through the years to write about this and to, to study it. You've been on various commissions to rethink uh, the military. We're in a different world today. The yes. Soviet Union is gone. Uh, yes. What do we need? Because this is now we now President Trump is saying, you know, is is speaking about uh, massive new investments in uh, the military, and people seem to agree we need some. But what 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 do we what what should we be doing that we're not doing? Well, I'm not sure your podcast has, has enough time. Yeah. That's a book like question. We made the transition painfully. Uh, September the 11th, 2001, when a, a decade had, had transpired since the end of the Cold War, and everything having to do with our security for 47 years had been focused on the Cold War, the Soviet threat, that in 72 hours, at the end of uh, 91, the Soviet Union dissolved. So we drifted for 10 years with no real definition of our role in the world militarily. And we maintained, continued to maintain year after year, a Cold War military. Big bomber fleets, uh, bigger craft carrier task forces, and big army divisions. All of a sudden, 9-11 happened. And by the way, I co-chaired the commission. I know that you predicted did it. it. And you, exactly, you you issued a report in January of two thousand and one. Yes, that essentially predicted that there would be an yes. attack at some point. Yes. Well, I'll quote the report. And actually, the first iteration of it was in an interim report in ninety nine. And the language in the final report to the new president George W. Bush was. America will be attacked by terrorists using weapons of mass destruction, and Americans will die on American soil in large numbers. That's as clear as you can make it. And, and they, you paid, think- they paid no attention. So bracket the fall of 91 with the fall of 2001, 10 years, we didn't think about the world of the 21st century. And that's what our our two-and-a-half-year commission tried to do, mm-hmm. lay out a blueprint. Paid no, no one paid attention in the, first, in, the, in the second Bush administration. Anyway, uh, so the new Soviet Union, if you'll put it that way, the, the single enemy is terrorism. And uh, President Bush declared war on terrorism. As, as it's been repeatedly pointed out, that's, that's declaring war on a method the terrorism is a method for people who want to undermine Western democracy. So is there a military solution to that? Partly, but not totally. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think the adjustments have been made uh, since that time? Do you think that the military is, 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 is better equipped to, to deal with the military side of those challenges? Well, the services finally came around to special forces, which our commission advocated. I mean, we had army rangers at the time and a Delta Force and so forth, but they had never been the centerpiece of those services. They were kind of adjunct guys that you sent to rescue hostages or something like that. But we recommended, and people like me have been consistently recommending, they become the centerpiece of our military because you're fighting indigenous forces in local communities, and big army divisions aren't going to defeat them. So expand the special forces, integrate them. I'm in favor of a fifth military service called special forces. And you put the Delta Force and the Rangers and the uh, Air Force special forces and all of them together, and they're a fifth service to fight terrorism. You wrote a book uh, in the early 80s uh, called A New Democracy, and you talked about... uh, three things. You talked about technology, you talked about globalization, and you talked about uh, polarization, growing polarization within our uh, political system. This was in 1983. All of those things now uh, have come to the fore. Yes. Uh, and, and where do you think we are today relative to those things, to those forces? Have And how do we cope with them? What is the 
what if you were writing that book today uh, what should we be doing as a country well, to deal with that? I think the better question is what should we have done then if if in fact we were entering and i I was giving speeches about this before that book came out in the seventies in my first term in the Senate, saying the revolutions are globalization and information, and they are going to force us into a transformation economically equal to the transition in the early first half of the 19th century from agrarian economy to a manufacturing economy. Now think about that, and, if, and I know you've read about that period. It hugely dislocated. I mean, farmers lost their farms. If they didn't move to Detroit to work in a factory, they lost their farms, or the f- farms were consolidated by wealthier farmers. But it was a it was a huge shift to the base of our economy, if you will, from Kansas to I don't know um, Detroit, I guess. And we all know what that has done in, in terms of race and urbanization mm-hmm. over the next century. It seems like these changes are even more rapid now and more more pervasive. The the acceleration is incredible. And what we could have done then is begin to develop an an education system that didn't end in the 12th grade, that offered dislocated steel and auto workers training to make the transition. To the new jobs now, is a 55-year-old steel worker going to learn computers? Probably not, but he could be put he could be put to work doing other things. We just didn't have we, this country has been against centralized quote centralized planning, and anytime you begin to talk about national programs to make this transition, the conservatives say that's central planning. The market will take care of it. Well, the market didn't take care of it, and we still are suffering. Because 30 years ago, we didn't begin to prepare for this transformation. Uh, I'm going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Senator Gary Hart. We didn't do that. Now we see massive uh, uh, disruption in our economy relative to the, the people who are caught in the switches of these changes. A lot of it is fueling some of the political alienation that the president yes. has seized on. Um, presumably you don't think that he has the, uh, the answers to this uh, problem. Let, let's stipulate that. Uh, you said to me uh, earlier before we started recording that you that to, to say we're going to go back to the manufacturing ages, it would be like saying in the, in the early 20th century we're going to go back to the agrarian yeah. age. But if you were advising the Democratic Party right now, what are the three or four things that you would do to deal with this massive dislocation, growing alienation, uh, and uh, diminishing faith in our institutions to respond to it? Well, it's a big agenda, and it has to happen pretty quickly to counteract the current policy. I'd like to depersonalize it, and I'll talk about this president, but this administration— what they're what they're proposing to make America great again, if you use the the industrial revolution, is to say we're going to not be an industrial nation. We're going to be an agrarian nation. That is to say, we're going to go from the present to the past, and that's what he's advocating. Never going to work. We can't build. We can't fabricate steel and build automobiles cheaper than our foreign competitors. Now, his answer to that is. We'll not accept, we will not bring, let them bring their goods into our market, he says, because they're cheating. Well, you can either believe that or you're not. Most trade officials say the cheating is, is marginal at best, and it doesn't amount to the stealing of the entire U.S. market. But you can't turn your back on reality and history, and even though they're trying to do it on climate and science and a whole bunch of other things. So what should we be doing? Well, I said the two revolutions were globalization and information. Guess what? We are the world leaders in the second one. So we're trying to fight a regard action on globalization when we could have and should have, starting 30 years ago, made 
except the fact that the center of gravity in our economy now is Silicon Valley, metaphorically. That is to say, not five square miles, Mm -hmm. but everybody involved in transformational technologies, information, and, and we see it exploding all around us. So train young people for jobs in this market. I think we've got a half a generation that just has to be taken care of, 55 and above that we haven't taken care of, and they're the ones that have elected this president, uh, mostly white. And um, you keep coming back, and I think uh, Vice President Gore and a whole bunch of other people would say the same thing. It's, It's education and training. And it's lifelong. It's not getting a high school diploma or getting a college degree. It is having a system in community colleges, training programs, and so forth, to keep people who are technological or on the margins of it a step ahead or at least current with developments. And and there's no magic formula to this, but but saying make America great again isn't an answer. Let me uh, return to something that you raised earlier and and to your own story. Um, You ran for president in 1984. I covered that as a young reporter (laughs) for the Chicago Tribune. Um, Remember writing a story out of Iowa saying the guy to watch is Gary Hart, and I was ridiculed in my newsroom (laughs) for that piece. But you finished second in in Iowa and won the New Hampshire primary very nearly – uh, won the nomination. Walter Mondale, the former vice president, was the sort of establishment choice in that campaign, former colleague uh, of yours. You interestingly noted that you each won 25 states. He won the nomination, but there was a real, there was a, a, an, uh, an uh, obvious differentiation between those states, and they were the states that were on the winning end of yes. these changes and the states that were on the losing end yes, of these changes. Exactly. Talk about that. Well, the story, and again, maybe somebody out there wrote the story in in your former profession, but the story of the 84 Democratic nomination was really the story of this transformation. I think it's true, I've never done the research, but I believe it's true, that every state, and we're just talking about the Democratic Party here, but it did reflect the mood of the people in the state, every state that was benefiting from trade, global trade, supported me. Every state that was losing supported Vice President Mondale. They supported him, frankly, I I don't want to hang this around his neck because he is a good friend. He had a protectionist policy. And our current president is talking the same way. Uh, Vice President Mondale wanted to put a tariff on cars brought into the country and insist that 60% of every car sold in America be built in America. I never figured out how you calculated a percent of a car, but nevertheless, I'm sure somebody could have figured it out. So those who were losing in this new economy uh, wanted that kind, wanted to make America great again by keeping the competition out. It was not going to happen. And that really was, I think I want every New England state, including Massachusetts, uh, I won almost all the southern states, including Florida. Almost won Georgia, by missed by 4,000 votes. And Vice President Mondale said if he had lost Georgia, he would have lost quit. Them, yeah. So that's how close it came. But, you, then the, but then we headed west, and I think I won all the western states. You, you came back, in, and you were the front-runner in uh, to, uh, in 1987, whatever that means. I, well, it means that you uh, many people believed you to be the person who's going to be the nominee. I met with you at that time. I left the newspaper business. We met. I remember at a little pub at the University of Chicago, and you told me something that always stuck with me, which is always remember that Washington's last, <laughs> always the last to get the news, which I think was one of the wisest things anybody's ever told me about politics. <laughs> but you became the news in a way that you obviously uh, didn't want, and uh, it, it, it destroyed your political career. Well, I'd, I'm going to push back against that word. I left the race seven days after the publication of the original story, which was wrong, 
factually and, wrong. And we should say, not, I'm, I'm, I don't want to belabor the point, but uh, you were seen in the company of a, a woman who wasn't your wife, and this was at that time considered do, do, a big... Do you know what? I doubt there's a... I think the vice president has said he will never go to dinner with a woman who is not his wife unless his wife is there. Now, I think he's probably the only man in America, if not the world, who... I understand. Not, I don't want to well, relitigate, okay, yeah, relitigate well, that. But I, I'm going to have to push back okay. because I've had to live with this. Yeah. Okay, the original story was false. Then some senior journalists in America, whose names were well known, decided... Um, well, even if this story is wrong, there must be something there, and we're going to explore every aspect of this man's personal life. When that was, that's a fact, that's a fact, when that paper made that decision, I knew there was no hope of conducting any kind of thoughtful campaign. Just think about it. Just think about that a very famous editor of one of the largest newspapers in America put his entire newsroom on exploring every aspect of my life. So when that happened, I said to myself and others, I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't why I got into to public service. I, I've got nothing to hide, but I'm not going to have... Every rock, every aspect of my life explored starting day one. It's just not worth it. And that's what I said on the following Friday when I chose not to continue to run. Okay. That, well, that's okay. It, if you've lived with this. No, I know. Okay. Senator, I, 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 my I, campaign was not destroyed. I made a conscious, solid decision that it, I wasn't going to put up with this. Well, let me push back on okay. you. You, I, I've been around politics for 40 years. I don't think I've ever met a brighter, more incisive mind than yours oh, in you. politics. And from that moment on, though you made many contributions at the margins on commissions that were important, as you point out, you, you spoke to one of them and so on, you were lost to the country. Uh, you did not, you were not available. Your leadership was not available. No, I, I don't a, think that was that was not merely a matter of choice on your part. That, that you were in you. It seems to me you were on the hinge of history because there were presidents going back uh, generations and 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 for centuries who, if aspects of their life had been examined as yours was, they they couldn't have served. John F. Kennedy was one of them. Franklin Roosevelt was another. Abraham Lincoln struggled with depression would not have been elected president if his history had been uh, recorded. They went on to become the, among the greatest presidents uh, in history. Four years after you got elected, uh, four years after you got out of the race, Bill Clinton got elected, whose foibles were there for everyone uh, to see, famously. And now we have Donald Trump, who, who's, uh, whose escapades have been uh, recorded in his own voice. Um, it seems to me you were right in the hinge of history. Matt Bai has written a book about this, the journalist, and says and argues that this is when our politics took a, a very negative turn. It, but but you were the one who who sort of were was lost to the country. Why? And what what was it about that moment? And has it changed politics in our country? Well, I think you'd have to ask your former profession. What happened in American journalism to um, decide that in a competitive journalistic environment where newspapers were beginning to lose readers to what was increasingly tabloid television, that they had to become tabloid themselves? Uh, I think historically, you, if you put the pieces together, a man called Rupert Murdoch showed up on our shores in 1985 and uh, went into the news business by 87 for sure, and then st started Fox News and a whole bunch of other things, created partisan media in America. And um, th there was a rush to sell newspapers. Now, um, there was... Technology has there, something well, to do I with it as well. I want to finish, David. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I had to live for 30 years with journalists saying, um, we did this because he dared us to. That is totally, absolutely false. But every story I read about myself started with that. We wouldn't have done it if he hadn't dared us or challenged us. They Matt, said a quote Matt where you Bai said, killed me into, that yeah, yeah. myth. Matt Bai killed that myth. You have not read it since his book came out. Mm-hmm. But I had to live with it for 30 years. So um, we're paying the price. We're paying the price. And I said, if you go back, you go back and, and listen to the five-minute, six-minute talk I gave two blocks away when I said I was getting out of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I predicted, we're here in Denver, we should point out. Uh, I predicted it. I mm-hmm. predicted it. That policy, I, that I said, if, if we turn the press into hunters and the political figures into the hunted, we are going to destroy the leadership of this country. There's a movie going to be made of Matt, Matt Bai's book called The Front Runner. That's what I hear. Hugh Jackman playing you. I, I, I have to say I admire you <laughs> for having Hugh Jackman play you. If they did a movie about me, Rob Reiner would be the, the star of the movie. But um, wh- uh, how do you feel about having all of this revisited uh, in a film and bringing all of this back? Well, I'm going to answer that, but circle back to one thing you said earlier that I was lost to service I was available to Bill Clinton for eight years and never was asked to do anything and I could have been of service to him I wasn't looking for a cabinet position but I I let him know through mutual friends that uh, I could help in Russia and and a number of other places arms control and Mm -hmm. a variety of things Um, with one important exception. I was not asked to do anything in eight years of the Obama administration, and you had to do with that, and that was to chair a a committee at the Defense Department. So I was available. Okay. I just just would not do what's fashionable in Washington as lobby for a job. But uh, in terms of the movie, are you... No, the movie? I don't know. First of all, I'll be very honest. I think it's bizarre. If anyone had said to me... Any time in my life, somebody's going to make a movie out of you. If I'd been president, maybe. But I wasn't president, so why? And then, I mean, it could have been a not very reputable actor. (laughs) But then they said, Hugh Jackman. I I really didn't believe it. I seriously didn't believe it. Now I'm in communication with him, and he sounds, by email, like an absolutely wonderful human being. Yeah, he's a great actor. Yeah, he is a great actor. I loved Les Miserables. <laughs> I didn't um, watch the Wolverines. <laughs> let me, uh, uh, let me, uh, yeah. Well, having sharp, uh, having sharp claws may be the appropriate role for someone who's doing a film about politics. I don't know. Although maybe not one portraying you. The, let me ask you finally about uh, where we are today relative to Russia. You're one of the great experts on Russia and the country. You had relationships with Mikhail Gorbachev in the 80s, and uh, you've been going to Russia uh, steadily over decades. Uh, What do you make of our relationship with Russia, and what do you make of this story about the president and Russia? You know, I think we missed a huge opportunity. I'm I'm in a minority on this. Back in the 1990s, of how we could develop a a better U.S.-Russian relationship post-Cold War. And it was really in the area of institution building. They needed legal systems. They needed banking systems. They needed uh, assistance in setting up political parties, really basic. Democracy building. Democracy mm-hmm. and, and capitalism mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. I think um, there was a little bit of that going on. In fact, I, I led a 12-year program to modernize the Russian telephone company and with a U.S. telephone system. Gorbachev sent that project to me. And that had more to do with the modernization of the Russian economy than any other single event. Now, we should have been doing more of that, and we didn't. The president at the time thought his personal relationship with President Yeltsin was what the what the bilateral relationship was all about that's 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 not serious and um now we're in a mess and 
I guess your question asks what I think about it. I, I think all the indicators are to the effect that there is something in the current president's background in Russia that he is trying desperately to prevent coming out. I don't know why, and I don't know what. What do you think the implications of that are for the country? Well, depends on Power's what, not there. Depends on what that is. It, you know, if it's, a, if it's a personal misbehavior, that's one thing. If it's something systematically having to do with money and lots of money and where the money came from and where it went and where it ends up and what ends up, where, where the Trump empire ends up in Russia 20 years from now, that's something else. Is, uh, so you think there's some there there? Yes, but um, yes, but on circ- circumstantial evidence, I don't, I don't have any hard evidence. But I do know that if you set up an administration with Mr. General Flynn, Senator Sessions, and Comey being asked to be loyal, what you're doing is trying to set up protection against in, uh, investigation. Now, that might have worked had it not been for the solid evidence from across the U.S. intelligence community that they dabbled in our campaign. So that's the Achilles heel. When the Russians did that, hacked into our political system, that then anything going on in the Trump world in Russia becomes fair game. Finally, what what, what about... What about the health of our own political system, our own institutions, our own democracy? Where do you think we are today? Well, you talked about books. The last book I wrote two or three years ago was called A Republic of Conscience. I think our system is corrupt. And, but I use the classic smaller Republican definition of corruption. In ancient Athens and since then, and including Thomas Jefferson and his colleagues, They didn't define corruption as money under the table, which is what most Americans think of. They said corruption, which will destroy a republic, is putting special interests and narrow interests ahead of the common good, what today we would call the national interest. And you well know, as much as anyone, what Washington is like. When I was in office, I'm told in the late 70s, early 80s. There were 146 registered lobbyists in Washington. Today, there are over 13,000. And that's the registered lobbyists. That's not all those uh, people who list themselves as strategic advisors, yeah. whatever that means. And 400 to 500... That means unregistered lobbyists. <laughs> 400 to 500 of those are former members of Congress. And equal amount, former members of administrations. So it is a revolving door. And to the degree the American people are angry, that's what they're angry about. And I join them in that anger. And what's the answer? Because, you know, President Trump campaigned against... That, or at least he spoke against it, draining the swamp and so on. Well, (laughs) you you can define that any way you want to, but all you have to look at is the last six months, he wasn't serious about whatever that, any definition you give on the swamp and draining it, he's, he's lost. I think, you know, the history of American politics is um, reform. Adlai Stevenson, uh, not Adlai Stevenson, but... um, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. wrote a book on the cycles of reform and what he called consolidation. And usually you have a, a cycle of reform after a, a real scandal, not what we call scandal today, but a real corruption scandal. And rules change, financing of campaigns change, and then that settles in. We saw some of that after Watergate. Yeah, Exactly. And then you have a period of what he called consolidation, which is basically conservatism. Here's the new system, and we're all going to play by this system. Uh, you know, I don't think, I don't, this is not the, this is a populist era, but it is yet to produce, maybe Senator Warren is an exception, 
uh, real, the kind of real progressive reformers that the last populists 100 years ago or more produced. And that's what we're looking for. But political parties also have to reform themselves. And, and that's where we're really up against it because the political parties and their candidates are so dependent on special interests to get elected that they're not about to reform the system that they're dependent on. So we're stuck. We're stuck. Well, we're st- and, and, until another Watergate. Mm-hmm. And do you think that that may be at hand? I think it could be. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll see what Mr. Mueller comes up with or whether Mr. Mueller's fired. Which would be uh, an igniting yes. uh, uh, event. Gary Hart, I could uh, talk to you for a very long time. You have great wisdom. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, and I appreciate uh, all your elective and unelective uh, service to this country. Thank you. Good to great be pleasure. You. Always great to see you, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.